As we get into our sermon tonight, we are going through the second half of Revelation chapter one. And, and in Revelation chapter one, we really get an introduction to Revelation. And when we talk about Revelation, we have to remember that Revelation was written by the Apostle John. And he was written, he was writing this during the time when the church was being persecuted. At this time, again, I, I mentioned last time that I believe that Revelation was written uh, about future times, times that hasn't happened yet. Um, and so I believe that it was written in the late, uh, I believe late 1980, uh, 80, 80, 90, 80, whatever, 80, 90. Um, and so it's, and so it's written, um, it's, so just give you a bit more context. The Jerusalem fell, the, the Jerusalem fell to the Roman soldiers, the Roman army around 70 or 80 AD, all right? Um, and so, and so I believe this is written after that. And so, and so there's, there's a lot of persecution going on, right, with the Christian church. And, 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 the, and, and people were suffering for the gospel. By this time, most likely 11 to 12 apostles have already been martyred. And so we see here that there's, there's suffering, there's trials, there's tribulation, and it reminds, of, it reminds us of what 2 Timothy chapter 3, uh, verse 12 says, where it says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All Christians face some form of persecution, some form of suffering. In other words, suffering is no stranger to us as Christians. That the church faced through a lot of suffering throughout its history. Right? We look through the early church history, but just throughout this time, that the gospel was always under threat. Um, we see that here with, um, with early church, right? We saw Paul as he go on this missionary journey, just being persecuted. We see here even John, he's writing in exile, this whole book of Revelation that we're studying. And even we move forward a couple hundred years later or a thousand years later we we come to the reformation the reformation was also a lot of suffering and persecution against the christian church right have you guys heard of bloody mary that 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 term bloody mary comes from queen mary of england killing many christians that her name became bloody mary there, there's this there's persecution throughout church history and the church suffered because of that and even today the church suffers. The church continues to face this kind of persecution and suffering. And we see this both within the church and outside the church, right? Within the church, we, we deal with immorality. We deal with arguments and divisions, right? There are fractures within the church and that creates arguments, that creates hardships, that creates suffering. Outside of the church, we see the secular culture rising up against God, denying the existence of God, and rebellion, rebelling against God straight out. Right? And we see redefinitions of everything that God has created. Then there's also personal suffering that some of you guys might be going through. Being a Christian, perhaps you are seen as, as the goody two-shoe in your friends group. Um, perhaps your unbelieving friends mock you because of your faith. Uh, perhaps you feel uncomfortable when you hear a professor talk poorly upon faith and, and you sit there, you're not sure what to do, how to react. Or, or maybe you feel pressure or certain disdain from family members who are unbelieving. 
there's persecution even for you personally, right? Suffering. And that's what we're going to look upon here today as we take a look at here and we're still through the introduction of Revelation. But we will see how, why, when John wrote this, he meant this to be an encouragement. He meant this to be a reminder. He meant this book to be one that gives you strength through your tribulation. And so with that, turn with me in your Bible to Revelation chapter 1. We're not already there. Revelation chapter 1. And we're going to look at verses 9 to 20. And what we'll find in this one passage here is, is that we will find that you can find your strength and your comfort through any tribulation, through any suffering in the sovereignty of Jesus Christ. And to do that, I broke this passage down to three parts. I'm not going to read through the whole thing now. We'll, we'll, I'll read it as we go through each part. But the first part that we're going to see here is we're going to see the one commission. The one commission here. And, and the one commission here is indeed the Apostle John. Read here with me, starting with verse 9. It says, I, John, your brother, and partner in the tribulation, in the kingdom, in the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in the book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Theotira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. We see here John, the apostle John, one of the 12 disciples, right? Close friend with Jesus. He here is writing, it says here he's writing on, he, he's, he's, he had this vision, this prophecy, this revelation, most likely he even wrote this book on this island called Patmos. And he was exiled there, exiled for his Christian faith. He was stranded there. And when we're talking about exile, we're not, you know, he's not like he's taking a vacation on this island. He, he's there. He's most likely being put to work by masters. He's most likely being put underneath a lot of hard labor. This is not an easy time on an island. He's exiled there and being punished. And it says here that while he was on this island, he was brought up in the spirit. And so we see here that this is not like he was brought up physically up to heaven. All right, there's only two people in the Bible recorded that was physically brought up to heaven, not having died. But John was not like that. He, was, he saw this vision of heaven, this vision of God in the spirit. Right? And this, this reminds us of Old Testament times when the prophets, the Old Testament prophets, they had visions of God as well. They, their prophecy came from through these visions. Um, the, the one that's most prominent is the prophet Ezekiel. He constantly says he was taken up by the spirit to see these grand visions of the temple in heaven and, and of what is to come. And then it says here that John was taken up in the spirit on the Lord's day. Now, we have this one phrase that we find in the Bible a lot, day of the Lord, right? And that day of the Lord is constantly talking about the second coming, talking about the time when Jesus Christ will come back and he will judge the world. But this is not what the Lord's day is talking about. So it's, actually, it's a different phrase in the Greek, and that's why it's translated into English as the Lord's day, not the day of the Lord. And, and most scholars believe that this is actually the day that the early church had their services, had their worship service. Most likely Sunday, but we're not completely sure. 
um because it's not specific here just calls it the lord's day but it was most likely like our sunday service so it's on that day he was lifted up in the spirits what more can we say about john here we see here that john also had a close relationship with the seven churches in verse 9 when he introduced himself he says i john your brother and partner he says you're he's a brother and a fellow partaker uh, he's one who doesn't see himself as separate and apart. He's not just riding as some distant authority figure. He was one who was on the ground with them. He was a brother and fellow partaker of the tribulation, the kingdom, and the patient endurance found in Jesus. And, and, and these three phrases here, tribulation, kingdom, and patient endurance, these are the three Christian experiences the three experiences that that's guaranteed for all Christians to go through when they are in Christ. This is all found in Christ. And the reason why it's all found in Christ is because earlier in this letter, back in verse 5, Jesus himself went through all this, right? He is Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Jesus himself was a model of this suffering, this persecution, as well as the model of the kingdom to come. Right, so so this, this tribulation, this kingdom, this endurance is all found in Jesus because Jesus experienced the first and we are all found in him. And when we follow Christ, we follow his robe. We follow the path that he walked upon. We suffer because of his name, right? Um, Matthew chapter 10, verse 22 says, and all, um, what does it say again? It says, all will... I will be persecuted because of my name, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So John here was a fellow brother and partaker in the tribulation, in the kingdom, in the endurance. And he writes then to fellow brothers. He writes then to the church. And what he writes here is account of what this loud voice and it describes this loud voice in verse 10 like a trumpet, right? And so we, we get this, this, this blaring sound. And the trumpet is constantly used in, as an imagery throughout the Bible as the introduction of God. He's about to speak. It's like, it's like our personal ringtone for God, right? The minute you hear it, you know God's about to speak. He's about to enter, and you better listen. Which brings us then to the second thing we'll see, which is the one who is commissioning. The one who is commissioning John. The one who's commissioning John here is indeed Jesus Christ. Let us read here, starting in verse 12. It says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of God, clothed in a long robe, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in the furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. We see here 
that Jesus is the one speaking. And so as John turns to, to view this voice, and remember, he's already taken up in the spirit. He turns and views, and what he sees first is he sees seven lampstands. Seven lampstands. And, and we can look at these seven lampstands and we're like, what is this? Why is there suddenly seven lampstands? Well, the answer is actually given to us in verse 20. Let's, let's go and look there real quick. Verse 20, it says, As for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So here's a clear explanation of what John is saying. These symbols that we will see throughout Revelation, some of them are explained, some of them are not, some of them are illusions from the Old Testament. We have to dig through the Old Testament to understand them. But here it's clearly described to us as the seven churches. That's what these lampstands stand for. That's what they symbolize. And the reason, as I said last time, is the reason why there's seven of them is because seven is the number that symbolizes perfection of a unity, of a whole, of, a, of, of, a, of, of this wholesome look of everything. And so these seven churches, they themselves also represent the entire universal church, all of us, the church of all ages including us, including SCBC Wanda, including all believers. And so we see here these seven lampstands representing the church. And then amongst the lampstands says here in verse 13, stands one who's like the son of man. And this is interesting because the, the son of man here is a, is a term that's used uh, by Jesus, Jesus himself called himself the son of man, but it's a term that we find, it's a term that we actually find first used back in Daniel. In Daniel chapter 7 verse 13, it says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the cloud of heavens, with the clouds of heavens, there came one like a, oh, I misspelled that, like a son of man, not so, like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, right? And so, so Daniel here, he sees this vision. And Daniel himself, um, when Daniel had his vision, the Old Testament, he was, Israel was actually in exile. So Daniel was in exile. Daniel was in a foreign land. And he was being held captive, right, by, um, I believe it was the Babylonians, right? Um, and, and, so, and so God then revealed to Daniel at this time, when Israel was in exile and the throne in Israel was empty, God reveals to Daniel that he still reigns, that he still reigns from heaven and that God has not forgotten his people. And God here shows Daniel that there will be a time. There will be a time when the throne in Jerusalem will be filled again, will be filled by a man, a son of man. And this man will be one who is righteous and good, and we find out in New Testament that Jesus Christ is the Son of Man. He is the Son of God who put on the form of man to be born of man so that he can take the throne. And so back here in Revelation, John was given this vision, a vision of Christ who now rules presently today, even right now in heaven. Jesus has not forgotten his promise to the church. Jesus, when Jesus says, when he, uh, his last words recorded in Matthew, right? Matthew chapter 28, 20, he, he says, he will be with them to the end of the age. Jesus meant it. He will be with the church to the end of the age. Right now, he's still presently 
raining. More than that, we see here a description of Jesus. We find here in, the, in, in from verse 13 to 16, uh, six descriptions of Jesus Christ. And the first description that we find here is his compassion. Note here, towards the end of verse 13, right? It talks about one like a son of man who is clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. So this long robe here is a, it's the same word as used to describe the, the high priest uh, attire, the attire of the high priest. Right? It's this robe that falls down to their feet. So it's a long robe, and, and, and part of their attire is also to wear this sash. It wasn't golden, but they were also to wear this sash. We see here that Jesus himself was clothed in this long robe, and he has this golden sash. So he's both a priest, but he's also royal. He's also a king. He's a priest king. And so what we see here is that Jesus here is described as a priest. And that reminds us, that reminds the church that Jesus is indeed the great high priest. Now, he's the one right now presently interceding on our behalf. He's the one who pleads for us before God the Father. And more than that, Jesus Christ, the high priest, made the greatest sacrifice ever made. He permanently paid our debt to God by sacrificing his own life, his body on the cross for our sins. And we get the perfect description of this high priest in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. What we get here is that Jesus... Jesus had great compassion for us. He had great compassion for us as sinners, people who deserve judgment, and yet he, the perfect one, sacrificed himself for us so that we may be redeemed. Jesus, as our high priest, becomes our greatest comfort and hope in this life. And in the midst of suffering, in the midst of persecution and trials, this is the hope and cover we cling on to. Jesus is our great high priest. And then we see here Jesus in his purity. Verse 14 talks about the hair of his head. They're white, white, like white wool, like snow. And then it talks about his eyes. His eyes are like flame of fire. Then his feet, his feet are like burnished bronze, refined in the furnace. Well, we get here all these different terms of this white, hot fire of purity. The, the phrases here used brings us back to, alludes to Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 9, it says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat, and his clothing was white as snow, and his hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was of fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 9, the Ancient of Days is God himself, right? The great almighty God himself was pure. He is white as snow. He's, his, and he, he burns. His righteousness burns because his righteousness says that he will be the one that will, that will purify all things to be clean. You see here that as this is described the Ancient of Days, and we look here in Revelation, this describes the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. This affirms Jesus 
as indeed the divine son of God. He's not just a man, but he's also fully divine. He is God in flesh. And when we see here in Revelation that Jesus burns white hot in holy righteousness, he is both pure and the purifier, right? And this makes sense, right? Because think about when you wash something, right? If you say you're washing dishes, you don't, you don't wash dishes with dirty water, right? It doesn't work. You, you, you wash dishes with clean, pure water. Right, so the water first has to be pure, and through its purity, it washes away the grime and the grease. In the same way, Jesus is pure, and he is the purifier. And so he is pure, and he will purify his church. Right, Jesus, he, he, he does all this. He does this even for you as believers, as Christians. When we deal with sin, Jesus will purify you. He will make you holy, but that means it will burn. It will hurt. You will go through suffering for your sin, but you will still be held by Christ. Meaning you will still be saved, but there is still discipline that will happen in our life. We see here that Jesus appearing purifies the church and describes here even his eyes. Right? And his eyes are flames, are like, we're like a flame of fire. This, this tells us that Jesus' eye sees everything. He sees all of our sins, even the ones that we hide deep inside of our hearts. Jesus walks around in judgment against that sin. Jesus will judge your sin. He will be, you will be disciplined. You will be purified. And it will be painful, but it will also be good because it will make your faith stronger. It'll draw you closer to God and, and you will come to see the holy righteousness of God, of Christ, to be a good and wonderful thing to cling on to. And then we see a third description of Jesus. It says here, it says here in the end of verse 15, that his voice was like the roar of many waters. And this describes his authority. Right? When we think about the roar of many waters, right? you think about the sound of a waterfall. If you, if you guys have ever like hiked to a waterfall and been next to a waterfall, and you're just you're and you're you're next to it, right? And it's it's loud. The waterfall is loud, right? It, it overpowers almost every other sound. And so it says it says here that Jesus' voice is like the roar of many waters. His voice overwhelms all other voices. His voice is the one that has authority over everything else. Authority of one who reigns above us. And so when Jesus speaks, you out to listen. God said in Matthew 17, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to him. And then see for the last, the last three characteristics of Christ here. Verse 16, in his right hand, he held seven stars. So then we saw, we saw in verse 20 that these seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, right? And so this talks about um, Jesus' sovereign control, his control over the church, over his church, his body, right? Jesus is the one who leads his church. He leads them through these angels. And the word angel here, it's a, you know, if your Bible translates angels, it's a, it's an interpretation because the, the, Greek word literally translates to messenger, 
So it could be angels, because angels were definitely messengers of God, but it could also have been elders of the church, appointed to the church as messengers of God, preaching God's word to them, right? And so, so we don't know exactly know what, what these seven stars in terms of what them, exactly who this person is, but I don't think it matters. What we do see here is that these messengers, these angels or elders, uh, they were the ones who spoke for God to the church and in a way becomes his voice. And so we see here that in his right hand, Jesus held these seven stars. And so Jesus was in control. It was Jesus' word, Jesus' voice that the church heard. And Jesus is the one who guides the church and leads them. Right. And so this here is, is Jesus controlling the church. And then we see here that Jesus, um, out of his mouth, came a sharp two-edged sword. And so Jesus is always the one who protects. He's the one who protects his church. Right? Jesus uses the sword to attack evildoers. We will see this later in Revelation. Right? Uh, later in Revelation, it talks about the sword coming out of Jesus' mouth and attacking those who rebel against Christ. Jesus will protect his church, and no one, not even the gates of hell, can overcome Jesus' church. And then the last part of verse 16 says, His face was like the sun shining full strength his face shining in full strength and we see your description of his glory his glory and we think about sunlight right um as a as a photographer you love it when there's sunlight but we also know that sunlight can also be too harsh for for, for photos right and it's because sunlight is the strongest light that we can find here on earth right there's there's nothing that's stronger than the sun in terms of brightening something up Right, and the sunlight it reaches everywhere. Right, it's reach. It'll touch everything. You can even if you're not in direct sunlight, you'll feel its warmth. Right, the sun is powerful, and the sun is used throughout Scripture to describe the outward reflection of glory and honor. And it's used it's used not only to describe God or Jesus. It's, it's also used to describe the church. Right? We see this in Matthew 13, 43. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Right? So it even describes the church. The church would shine in glory and honor in the kingdom of God. And we see here in Revelation that Jesus, the one, his face shining in full strength. Jesus shines then his glory in and through the church right because again jesus is the one the son of man standing amongst the lampstands and amongst the lampstands the light that's being shined forth is jesus and his glory which then leads us to the third part of this passage which is the commissioning see here in verse 17 it says when i saw him I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things which you have seen, those that are and those are that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars, I mean, we already read that verse, so 
we know it. Um, so we, we see in verse 17 19, right? Verse 17 and 19, we see here the, the commissioning itself. What was exactly is John being commissioned to do? And the first thing we see here is John, his reaction to this vision, this grand vision of Christ. And his reaction is pretty natural, right? He fell down as though dead. I mean, this is a natural reaction that all the prophets, right, throughout scripture, this is how they reacted when they received revelation from God. I mean, we think for a moment, this is John. He was one of the three who actually saw Jesus transfigured on the mountain, right? Saw Jesus in this wonderful, blinding glory. And the same way he fell straight down on his face when the transfiguration happened. This same John, I mean, he knew what's up. And yet still, he fell down as though dead here in Revelation. What we see here is a fearful human reaction before God. I mean, any of us was brought before this grand vision, you will melt in the presence of Christ. This, this again alludes to an Old Testament prophet. Daniel chapter 10, verse 8 to 9 says, So I was left alone, and I saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and as, the, as I heard the sound of his words, I feel my face, I, well, I should be, I felt, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. Right? So we see here Daniel, even Daniel himself, after receiving this great vision, he fell down, his face to the ground, as the whole dead. And we saw here, right, as we've been going through this sermon, as we've been going through this passage, we saw a lot of allusions to Daniel. And that's actually important. It is important for us to know that there's a lot of stuff here in Revelation that's going to talk about what Daniel saw in his revelation. Because Daniel's revelation, most likely some of it, maybe most of it, was not fulfilled yet. And we see a, more, we see a conclusion of a lot of his visions being played out in Revelation. And so, the, and so the reason why we see illusions here in the beginning is to, is to show us, John here is showing us that his revelation provides a conclusion, a, a detailed conclusion to how these Danielic visions, prophecies will play out. But as we come back here to Revelation, we see here what Jesus says. And he tells John, not fear. He gives John assurance, gives him strength. That is important for us to know because the God who judged, the God who's great and glorious, who's righteous in every way, the God who judged is also a God who comforts. That is amazing. So we see here, we see here Jesus' assurance of life and redemption. He tells us, he tells John here, fear not, 
right? To have courage, fear not. Tells him, I'm the first and the last, meaning Jesus is constant. He's consistent. He doesn't change. No matter what turmoil you might go through, no matter what persecution, what trials, what suffering, though this world and life may seem like it brings you through these ups and downs, <laughs> you don't know what's going on. Jesus remains the first and the last. He is constant, unchanging. He is also the living one. And so we see here that Jesus is the one who lives, right? We see here he's the one who lives because he lives. And, and as he lives, he, it means that he is the very definition of life, right? Jesus is the living one. He's the one who lives. And, and, and when we look at this, we have to remember he doesn't just live as if he one time lived. Jesus lives because he's always living. He is the life. As we look through this, it says here that he also died. It reminds us that he went to the cross. He was buried. He truly died for our sins. He wasn't just asleep in a coma. He died. And he's now alive forevermore. Conquering death. Reminds us that the resurrection is our hope and our assurance. That Jesus Christ is alive forevermore, never to pass away never to disappear from existence. Jesus is who he is now, today, and forever. And through all that, it says here that he holds the keys of death and haze. And the word key here stands for authority. It's, it's like having, for instance, keys to the church. You get to have say who has access to the church, right? Uh, and so here, Jesus has the keys to death in Haiti. He is the one who is authority over both life and death. He is the one with the keys, the one who determines who lives in eternity in heaven, who experiences eternal death in hell. And thanks be to God that we have a Savior who has assured us eternal life. As we see here in John eleven twenty five, 25, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Because if you do, this creates the foundation of a hope and assurance that will never fade. This is the God whom we serve, Jesus Christ. He is our hope in life and death, our assurance of salvation. And so he tells here to John, fear not and go forth. And then we see here John's assignment to write down this revelation. And in verse 19, he gives John this command to write the things that you see, and things that are, and things that are to take place after this. And commentators have debated over what, the, what exactly these things are. What are these things, right? If you think that a lot of this have already um, have been fulfilled or like immediately, there's, there's, then what are the, what are the things after this? What are this? What are they talking about? Um, and so there's, there's a lot of debate around this, right? This kind of sets the tone for how you interpret the rest of Revelation. So I'll, I didn't have time to kind of get through and try to figure out all these different interpretations of this one verse. So I'll just give you my view. I believe the things that you have seen is 
literally what G what John has seen in this passage. He saw this grand vision of Christ in his glory. Write that down. Write the things that you have seen. Write the things that are. And he's, he's writing to seven churches. And in chapter two and chapter three, he's going to give them the state of their church, the things that are now for this church. Where are you guys at now? He's going to tell them where they're at. And then the things that are to take place, which is the end times, starting from chapter four to the end, talking about the great tribulation, the second coming. This is the things that are to take place after this. This here gives us the outline of Revelation. Now, this is the exposition of this passage, but what then does this mean for us? What does this mean for us? And to be able to connect the dots here and to really bring to a full understanding of why this passage is important to us as New Testament Christians, as people who's after, who, who exist long after these seven churches, what, what this means for us, we have to actually trace a little bit what's going on throughout Scripture, throughout the Bible. So I want to give us uh, a little bit of, a, of, a, of some biblical theology. Biblical theology through this imagery of the lampstand. I want to talk a little bit about the lampstand. I want to kind of emphasize this. And, and this will be the last portion of, of tonight's sermon. First, the lampstand appears first in Exodus chapter 25, verse 31 to 40. And in this, in this passage, uh, God has given Israel the, the details, the, the, the layout, the design for how they're out to build a tabernacle. Right, the tabernacle was to be the central place of Israel, and it was supposed to be movable. It was a tent, right? So they were able to pick it up and move it from place to place as Israel was wandering through the wilderness and waiting for their time to enter the promised land. And so they built this tabernacle, and this tabernacle was, a, was supposed to represent the presence and glory of God in Israel. Within that tabernacle, they were to set up a lampstand. A lampstand that symbolizes the light that shines forth from God onto his people. Lampstands will remind them that he is the light that will guide them. He is with them. He is present amongst them. And then we see the lampstand appear again in 1 Kings chapter 7, 40, verse 49. And in 1 Kings, this is talking about Solomon. Now Israel has found their land. They have settled down. They have built their nation. They have borders. They're united. And Solomon was tasked to build the temple, a physical temple that will not be moved. It will stay there in Jerusalem. And Solomon was told to place a lampstand in the house of the Lord, in this temple. And this lampstand, a singular lampstand, one lampstand, was to be made of pure gold. In the innermost parts, the house. Right? And so again, this is this is the innermost parts. This is the holy of holies. This is where only the high priests go to to make sacrifices before God for the sins of Israel. This is where God was meant to be, where God dwelt. It was from there you place a lampstand as a light to shine forth upon Israel. And it's meant to remind Israel that they themselves are to be a light to the rest of the world. And so here we see that the lampstand, this golden lampstand in 1 Kings represents the purity and importance of the temple itself. This reminds them that this is a place where God dwells. And this again, this is where God makes his presence known 
to his people. And then we see the last time Peter again in the vision in Zechariah. And I actually want you guys to turn to this passage because I believe this passage alludes a lot to our, to our passage in Revelation. Turn me to Zechariah. It's towards the end of the Old Testament. Uh, Zachari it's Zechariah and Malachi, which is the last book. So it's Zechariah chapter 4. And this here is the fifth version of Zechariah. Uh, Zechariah was a prophet uh, during Israel's return from exile. So I talked about Daniel. He was in exile. Zechariah was after Daniel. Zechariah was the time when Israel was returning back to the land. And they were in the process of rebuilding the temple. Right? So the temple was destroyed. And now they're rebuilding the temple. And as they're rebuilding the temple... Again, this imagery of a lampstand reappears. Um, there, there are two important key figures to remember, to, to make note of as we look at this passage. Uh, one of those figures was by name of Joshua. Right? Joshua, he was a high priest of Israel during that time. And another key figure is by the, goes by the name of Zerubbabel. He was like the governor. He wasn't a king, but he did come from the Lion David. But he was at that time a, like a governor, a, a political official of of Israel to lead Israel in this rebuilding effort. So keep in mind those two people. Let's take a look at this passage. Right? Zechariah chapter 4, verse 1. It says, And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me, and like a man who is awakened out of sleep, um, and he said to me, What do you see? And I said, I see, and behold, a lampstand, all gold, with a bowl on top of it, and seven lamps on it, with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. Now, what we see here, right here, is a picture, again, of one lampstand with seven lamps on it. Right? One lampstand with seven lamps, and besides it are two olive trees. Two olive trees. Let's keep reading here. Verse 4. And I said to the angel who, who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain. And he shall bring forward the top stone amid the shouts of grace, grace to it. Well, what we get here is an explanation of this, of, of what this imagery is, right? Again, we have a lampstand with two olive trees. And the angel doesn't really answer the question really like right out, right? He says here first that this is a word to Zerubbabel. Again, Zerubbabel is the governor at that time, governor of Israel, political figure. And it says to him that it will be not by, not by the might, not by power, but by my spirit. So what this here, what, what this angel here is telling, telling Zechariah to tell Zerubbabel is that the Lord, the spirit of the Lord will strengthen Zerubbabel to complete this rebuilding project. Right? The rebuilding of the temple will not be by the might of their own hands and power but it will be by their spirit. 
Uh, during this time, you guys know anything about the rebuilding project? You, you, you find the story of it in Ezra and Nehemiah. They actually faced trials rebuilding them because Israel's enemies didn't want them to rebuild the temple. And so they faced a lot of difficulties. And yet here, despite their difficulties looking like this great mountain, God here says that mountain will be plain. He will remove those obstacles. And this building project will be finished by my spirit. And so God here is saying he will work through Zerubbabel to complete this project. We would be now in verse 8. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid a foundation of this house. His hands shall complete it. Then you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. And so we see here that God is the one who will work through Zerubbabel to build this temple, right? It will, then, this is how God works, right? God's always by his power, but yet he decides to show his power through human agents, through our weaknesses. God's strength is made perfect. And so we see how God works through human agents, and he here decides to work through Zerubbabel. And then as we keep reading on, we keep reading on. I guess I guess I meant Zechariah chapter four verses one through fourteen, the whole chapter, not not, not just one through ten. But we see here in end of verse ten, uh, these seven are the eyes of the Lord, which range through the whole earth. So we see here these seven talking about the lamps on the lampstand. So now we get a direct description of what this lampstand is, right? The angel of the Lord is finally answering Zechariah. What are what are the, what's this vision? The seven lamps here are described. They are the eyes of the Lord. The eyes of the Lord. Here, it's a representation of his sovereignty, of his knowledge, of his foresight. They're the eyes of the Lord, and it says here, which range through the whole earth. God sees all. He is transcendent. He is not boxed in. He is ruler over the whole earth. God sees all and knows all. And so the light here. The light represents his presence amongst the entire earth. That his light, his presence covers even the darkest corners of the earth. Then as we keep reading, verse 11, Then I said to him, what are these two olive trees on the right and on the left of the lampstand? And the second time I answered and said to him, oh, the second time I answered and said to him, what are the two branches of the olive trees? Man, Zechariah really wants to find out what these trees are, which are besides the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out. Finally, here the angel answers. He says to me, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. Then he said, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. What we see here, these two branches of olive trees, uh, first, we give further description of these olive trees. They're besides these two golden pipes, which provide golden oil being poured out. So that tells us that the light from which this lampstand is shining forth, this light is self-sustaining. These olive trees provide oil to keep the fire burning. So the light keeps going. It's self-sustaining, representing God's everlasting strength. And then the two anointed ones. These two anointed ones 
speaks of two positions. There are two positions in Israel that are called anointed positions, and that is the position of priesthood and the position of the king, both anointed by God. And in this context, in this immediate context, the reason why Joshua and Zerubbabel are important is because in this immediate context, they are the two olive trees. They are the two olive trees. And, well, and the reason why these two positions are anointed and are important is because these two positions, the priesthood and the kingship, they're the mediators between the people of Israel and God. The priests mediate Israel to God by offering sacrifices for their sins. And thus, when God forgave Israel, God then, through these high priests, forgave the sins of Israel. But also then through the king, the king is supposed to rule justly and righteously over the land. And so through the king, God's justice and judgment and righteousness reigned over his people. The king and the priests are mediators between the people of God and God. It says here in verse 14 that these two anointed ones stand by the Lord. And it says it's the Lord of the whole earth so we get a sense here that this is not just talking about israel this is talking about the whole earth the whole earth is under god's sovereignty and these two branches are meant to be a mediator to the whole earth that god is indeed the king the ruler over all all people must behold god all people belong to god not just israel also not just the church. All people belong to God. And we, so we see here, as we kind of just went through the Old Testament real quick, we see here that each time God's people are called to build the house of God, right? The tent, tabernacle, the temple, the rebuilding temple, a lampstand was used to represent a light. The light that must shine forth from God God's the source from God to the people, to Israel, and then to the rest of the world. This is a light that shines, that covers, that demonstrates God's sovereignty and his transcendence over the world. It's to show that God is present. And in the New Testament, then, in the New Testament, we see that the temple of God is no longer a building, but is now you, it is the church. The body of Christ, we are the temple of God. And thus, we are then the light of Christ that shines forth into the world. And we see this clearly in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verse 14 to 16 says, Jesus says this. He says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. But they put a light on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We see here how the church is now the light that shines forth. The lampstand still exists even today, but it is now a light in us shining forth to the rest of the world. So that people, when they see us, when they see our good works, they may give glory to God alone. He is the source. It is his glory that the church is shining forth. 
And then in Revelation to our passage, you guys want to turn back to Revelation. In Revelation, we find the picture of the lampstand again. And this time, this time we see not just one lampstand, but we see seven. Seven lampstands, right? Right. We saw we, verse 12, there's seven golden lampstands representing the seven churches, symbolizing a universal church, symbolizing us. Meaning back then in Old Testament, there was one lampstand, and, and I'm, I'm making this interpretation, may not be right, but I'll, I'll just put this out there. This one lampstand in Old Testament most likely just represents the nation of Israel. Seven lampstands now in Revelation most likely represent the nations, the believer throughout the earth, the church, the universal church. And it says here in verse 12 or verse 13, in the midst of the lampstands, one, like a son of man, and the center of it all is Jesus. He is present amongst us. And so what we get here is that throughout this passage in Revelation, chapter 1, verse 9 to 20, we see here first that the church endures through tribulation that's found in Christ. And so when we go through trials, it's because Christ is standing in our midst. We're in Christ. And then we see here that these seven last and shine forth. Christ is right there. He's in the center of everything. And then we keep on reading through this passage. It says here in verse 16 that his right hand held the seven stars. Jesus sovereignly guides the church. He's holding them by his right hand. And then when we get then to verse 17, the same right hand that held these seven stars is the same right hand that's laid upon John. To give him comfort and strength. Jesus personally touches you. He personally touches you to comfort you and secure you in his everlasting presence. Because Jesus himself, in this picture here in Revelation, he fulfills the two anointed roles. He is both the priest and the king. He mediates you to God and God to you. He is your mediator. And he reminds you that he is the beginning, the end, the living one forever. And he is present in your life. So that when you go out into this world, it is his face that is shining through you. So then the big idea big idea that we see in this passage is that Jesus Christ shines forth in and through his church as the promised son of man, the priest king, who will redeem this world. We are to be that light of Christ. And the application of this is that we, the church, are then to pursue personal holiness, persevere through trials, commune together in public worship, and proclaim the truth revealed to us so that Jesus Christ is glorified through our lives. We see here how the whole biblical story of this lampstand that started back in Exodus finds its completion here in Revelation when Jesus Christ it's in the midst of it all, and it is his glory that shines forth. It's his glory 
that will in the end be everlasting and full and it will be our joy it will be our ultimate joy to be reflection and image of christ and his glory so with that let's pray father we come to you because Christ is our priest and our mediator. We come to you as servants because Christ is our king. Thank you, Lord, for giving us your son who cares so deeply about us, who is compassionate, who is strong, who's, who's pure and righteous, who is among us and with us, present in our life, even right now here in this room. Lord, we thank you for giving us your sons to remind us that you are with us until the end of the age. And so then let us go forth courageously, boldly in your name. Let us go forth and face persecution, suffering in your name. Because we know, God, you are with us and you are for us. Thank you, God, for saving us. Thank you, God, for giving us this great news. Let us share then this good news to others. Let us continue to make disciples. Let us continue to honor you and glorify you with our lives. Be with us then now in our discussion groups. Allow us to be able to uh, speak truth to one another, to share honestly, and to build fellowship as one body. Let us be the church. Let us be a light that shines forth in this world. Thank you, God, for this time. I pray all this in your holy and precious name. Amen.